episode 990, Dune Part 1. We loved you a ton. Movie review. Guess what? I'm playing the outro. Hold on. Oops. I can do this. There we go. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I'm Ben DeBono. And, and I can honestly say, and you know this, listeners know this, me and pop culture, we don't always get along. Right. So it's a really weird experience to not just have been excited about something. But I mentioned this on the news episode, like these last five days, uh, I, I watched it three times in 48 hours. Yep. So now that we're yeah. Yeah. Now that we're here, we mentioned this on the news episode, but let's both give our yeah. viewing. So go ahead. So I uh, we we both saw it Thursday night mm-hmm. in the theater with my daughter and that it's on HBO Max. I went home and I was like I want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. Now I had to work the next day, so I couldn't watch the whole thing, but I watched the first hour-ish uh up through roughly the Hunter Seeker attack um that night and then then watched it again the next day. It was just like, I, I just want to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it the day after that. Saturday, I took my son to IMAX. So I saw it three days in a row. And then in between that, you know, we were chatting about it, the Rainies yep. uh, on, online a bunch. Uh, I was, you know, diving deep into the Dune subreddit, which was fun because I had two different reaction threads, one for readers and one for oh, non-readers. Yeah. And I was really curious on the non-reader one. And I can give you some observations on that in a bit. Uh, but. Just like this obsession with that. And then everybody's kind of waiting for the green light of Dune Part 2, you know, and the box numbers start coming in and and you have to take it as relative because A, you still have uh, COVID still impacting the box office, not as much as it has. It's certainly coming back, but it's still an impact there. And then you have the simultaneous release on HBO Max. And so kind of the, the bo- benchmark was Godzilla versus Kong was Warner Brothers' biggest box office hit since they've done the simultaneous releases and that opened at 31 million and so that was kind of the line people were looking at and then it comes in at 40 million mm-hmm. you have warner brothers execs who are out there basically saying well if you saw the end of part one you know there's more yeah. you know and, and zendaya and timothy chalamet and josh brolin are all giving these interviews about how they're scheduled to film so you just well, have the sense of th- something building and then today yeah. we get the announcement yeah, they, like you said, the actors had said they were asked to keep summer 2022 open on the yeah. calendars. Yeah, and then just a few hours ago as we record here on Tuesday, the 26th of October, 2021, we find out the news. Sure enough, Dune Part 2, which they're officially calling, and we've mentioned this. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it has a different name. Oh, really? Okay. I, I could see it being called something like Dune Wadi, which could be a little esoteric for people since mm-hmm. they didn't introduce that term. I'm sure they'll do Part 2, because if you think of, we talked about this in the initial reaction, but... The title screen comes on yep. and it says Doom Part One, and I'm thinking they either know something we don't know, or they're just throwing it out there and hoping for the best. Oh, Denis Villeneuve, he, like he called his shot there, and not yeah. only that, like Part One was 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 brave, but then because they've never marketed it that way, no. But then ending the movie with a line that I I love it, but it kind of broke the first yeah, wall or fourth wall when Zendaya says, uh, this is only the beginning. And it works in the context of the movie. Is so that line was, from the book? No. No. But it was very much a we're looking at you, Warner Brothers executives. And so what what a what a move yeah. when you're not sure how this is going to go. So I'm watching it on Thursday night with you and just loving it. I do still think you love it more than me because you're already at a different level with Dune, but I love it. I, I just visually, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I was um, just kind of watching because I know what kind of movies my wife likes and I wasn't positive it would be her thing. Yeah. So I was paying close attention to what parts she may or may not like. And so I kind of pitched the idea of watching it with her. She went for it. So Friday night. So again, Thursday night, you and I see it. Friday night, we sit down and watch it straight through. I kind of gave her a few warnings for parts that I thought she may not like as much. But overall, uh, I got a good response from her. She gave it four out of five, whereas you and I both gave it fives. Uh, she has not read the book, I, so I feel pretty good about a yeah. four out of five for her. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, people are going to have different reactions yeah. to it, and I think, um, well, th- there's a few things to talk about, but and I have a, a lot here in the movie itself I want to talk about. And I'll say I could watch, like, I liked it enough, like I could watch it again right now right. and be uh, totally happy. Yeah, one hundred percent. There's something about it. There, it's a there's really, something special about it. It's a very immersive experience, and. Like, I think that term gets thrown around for any big blockbuster, but but let me define it maybe a little bit more, because people have used the term spectacle with it, and there's a lot of spectacle. But spectacle doesn't 
alone doesn't quite capture what I mean by immersive. So if you think about a movie like Inception, you know, it's a there's a lot of spectacle in that movie. And it's a it's a entertaining movie, it's an exciting movie, but I wouldn't call it immersive in the same way. And that's not a criticism, it's not trying to be, because you've got this dream logic going on and it, it doesn't feel quite the same way. This movie feels so fully realized in its world and so confident in it that it reminded me the most of Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson movies, with how those felt like you're immersed in Middle Earth. Or the other thing, so many blockbusters do, and and I'm afraid the MCU is very guilty of this, and maybe you like it, maybe you don't, so I'm not going to say it's objectively a criticism, but... The well, we're going to throw in jokes every five minutes, mm-hmm. and there was a few funny parts in Dune. I'm not saying it was joke free, but there was a confidence in taking the material so seriously, and not only that, but not having uh, that character to come in and make the the quip. Oh, another sandworm, Bob. You know, no, I think Are you well, kidding me? Even Lord of the Rings did this. Even too, Lord of the, especially the second extent. two. Yeah, in the second with uh, Gimli. Gimli. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. The movie was so confident not to have that. And I think that that is one of the biggest flaws in the second two Lord of the Rings movies is that those moments with Gimli take you out of the immersion because it feels like the director saying, we got to make them laugh so Mm -hmm. that they're okay sitting through the next two and a half hours, throw in a joke. It feels like studio notes to me. I'm not saying it is, but that's how it feels. And this was so confident and so immersive. And then especially seeing it in IMAX as we did for the first time, the visuals, the it, it's such a consuming experience, and the sound design, too, is, is very immersive. I've been really asking myself. Now, I, I admit to you, if you hadn't asked me to go with you, I would have been happy to have watched this for right. free on HBO Max and saved my $20. Right. But I've been asking myself, would I like this movie as much if I hadn't first experienced it in IMAX, which was, like, I watched them back-to-back nights, and IMAX was clearly the better experience. Yeah. I mean, there's just totally. no... Like, there's no doubt about it. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and you only watch on HBO Max and you loved it, I'd say do yourself a favor and go see it in the theater because it's totally different. Yeah, it's a great argument for what theaters need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you a comment on that in a second. Uh, but where there is still relevance to theaters, and I, I get it, like for most movies, like I'm excited to see um, The French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson movie. I'd rather watch it at home, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to be available for streaming. I don't think it is right away. But I'd rather watch that movie at home. It doesn't need the theatrical experience. But for a movie like this, like there is still a place for the theatrical experience. And I, I think of not only this, but uh, to stick with Denis Villeneuve, the, when I saw Blade Runner 2049 in IMAX, that was like, almost a transcendent experience for how immersive it was. A great example, because I watched it at home, and right. I thought it was... I, I remember liking it, but I didn't feel like this about it. What if I had seen that in the theater? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that you would have felt that way in the theater that you do about Dune, because I think you're probably more of a Dune fan than you are a Blade Runner fan, right. but I think you would have taken it up that next notch for you. Mm-hmm. I think there was something really special about seeing that. I, I mean, I did come into this movie viewing already loving the world of Doom from the book. So I've read yeah. the first two books. Right. And even, you know, we're, it seems like we're saying, well, movie theaters are for blockbusters. And that seems to be more or less the way it's going. But imagine seeing for the first time a movie like Tree of Life in an IMAX experience, like for what that movie is. Mm-hmm. That would be incredible, too. And so it's not just these big action, $200 million budget movies, even something that's more of an independent movie like that, I feel like Tree of Life would really benefit from the theatrical experience too. So it's it's both. But speaking of the theatrical experience, so we've seen two movies together in the last few weeks. We saw No Time mm-hmm. to Die in Dune. And we both we saw them both at AMC. And you got sat in the exact same chairs yeah, probably. You, you got 25 minutes of trailers. Mm-hmm. When I went with Owen, my son, on Saturday, we went to this IMAX theater in St. Michael near my house, and there were two trailers, and then the movie started right up. There was no stupid commercials about AMC. Like, they've got this stupid thing where they have Nicole Kidman in there talking about going to see a movie at AMC. It's like, Nicole Kidman, get out of here. (laughs) And (laughs) and, and to me, I took, comparing those two experiences, if you... I was going to say, yes, there is a place for the theater, but if you want to survive, respect my time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but 25 minutes of trailers I can watch online, 
did not respect my time. Especially when both those movies we saw were approaching three hours long. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they're right around. Yeah, well, yeah, Bond was actually a little bit longer, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it just it feels disrespectful to me as a consumer at that point where I love the experience of seeing it. The St. Michael Theater it was uh, there was the Matrix and there was some stupid Christmas movie. And then it started right up. It was just fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So where do we go? I am interested in the thoughts that you said about book readers versus non-book readers. But I also wanted to hear what do you know has been filmed in preparation for movie two? Yeah, so a couple things I know have been filmed, and and I'll broaden it out from just movie two, because as we'll get into, for book readers, there's a few things that are notably missing. So I guess we should be careful for spoilers, because we will have people listening to this that haven't read the book, so... Yeah, so for the book two stuff, or movie two stuff, I won't... It won't spoil anything, but it will mean something to book readers. Uh, The Water of Life scene has already been filmed. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that the... Friends of Jameis scene has already been filmed. Okay. So essentially stuff that's happening in the remainder of part two of the book. And so did they think that that would be a part of this movie? Or did, do you think they just did it because there there is a time jump when we... Yeah. Uh, in the book, there's a time jump. So I'm guessing that that's what we'll see in the movie. That I, I'm guessing it was that. But I could also see that they weren't 100% sure where they were going to end this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you leave yourself some ambiguity. A follow-up question then. Do you have any idea... And maybe it's just the studio didn't know if they could trust in Dune. But why didn't they film these movies back to back? Yeah, it, I think it was the studio being dumb. I mean, Denis Villeneuve wanted to. Okay. He he offered to do that. So it was his desire to do that. The studio didn't. Um, you know, given the time jump, maybe it cur- turns out okay yeah. that you're three, four years. The actors are all aged a few years. I don't know. But uh, I think certainly right now they're wishing they had. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So... Um, Oh, man, I was just thinking of a question I wanted to ask you, and maybe it'll come back to me. You, why don't you keep going? I'll, I'll remember it. So other things that they filmed that I've actually seen screenshots of, uh, the dinner scene, which is a very famous moment in the book that really gets into a lot of the politics, and then a scene with Jessica and Dr. Yui, where he's presumably telling her about her, his, his wife and kind of setting him up more. And it's interesting because there's been a lot of clamoring for an extended cut of this, obviously, I, mm-hmm. and I'm among that, not because I think the movie's bad, but just because I want more of it. Yeah. And Denis Villeneuve has been adamant that he he doesn't want to do extended cuts, but it's interesting that they're releasing this stuff. It feels like, it, I, I feel like an extended cut it will probably happen. I wouldn't bet on it, but mm-hmm. I think it's it. There's a decent chance it happens, and the fact that they're releasing this stuff at the at a minimum, I think we see some of these scenes. As deleted scenes on the, the the Blu-ray. All right. The question came back to me. Two questions related to the coronavirus. Number one. So I'll present I, them both. And I you don't can, have it. <laughs> I'll present the questions. You can answer them in any order you want. Number one. How much bigger would this movie have been if we if there was no pandemic? If this had come out th- a few years ago? That's the first question. Second question uh, is, do you think this movie benefited by waiting a year? What I mean by that is, do you think they've been tweaking little things here and there over the course of the last year or did we see the movie that we would have seen one year ago uh well i'll start with the second one i think they've definitely been tweaking and i think one of the pieces of evidence for that is that and this happens a lot but there's more in this case where there's dialogue or moments in the trailer that are different or changed mm-hmm. in the movie um noticeably duncan idaho's let's fight like demons line which would have been a callback to when he says the Fremen fight like demons from earlier in the movie, yeah. uh, that was a very prominent moment in the trailer. And the, that trailer was uh, about a year ago, I think, where that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not in the movie. And it, it's possible that they just use that line for marketing because it's kind of a cool thing. But uh, I think it's it's likely there were some tweaks. As for if the movie had come out pre-COVID or without COVID, it's tough to say. It could have gone either way because on like the bad scenario is it just gets lost in the shuffle, mm-hmm. and it's just another movie in this. You know, if you think of kind of what the box office churn was pre-COVID, it was so crowded. Marvel's releasing like four of these a year, and it's possible it it really gets lost in the shuffle. Whereas right now, uh, it stands out very prominently. 
and it feels in some ways like the first big post-COVID movie. I know post-COVID is a relative term, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it have made more money? Almost certainly. But uh, even that's relative in terms of success. Like success with the box office where it is right now is a very different thing than success was in 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody would be over the moon for a, a movie this big making 40 million opening weekend mm-hmm. if it's 2019. Mm-hmm. Right now that feels just gargantuan. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I hope that it would have still been a hit, but I think there's something to say that like COVID is, was disruptive and not only making people stay home, but it also kind of disrupted this, this churn, this, this habit that you're in of just like the next thing, the next thing and the next thing. And it did make space for something like Dune to really stand out in a major way that I don't think it would have otherwise. Yeah. It's a great point. I'm, I'm just thinking, what if like Blade Runner 2049, right. it just like no one sees it. It just right. kind of gets forgotten. Yeah. That, you know, that could... I, I, I'm there yelling about it. But, yeah. And I feel like it would have been bigger than Blade Runner 2049. Uh, but uh, how much? It, yeah. yeah. There's so many comparisons to Lord of the Rings, which you brought up, but also Star Wars. Yep. Uh, of course, we know that Star Wars was actually influenced by Dune. Right. Uh, I mean, what do you make of people making that comparison when they're really two totally different things? I mean, I, th- I think it's it's natural, I guess. And, and for what I'm going to say, keep in mind, I do love the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Dune kind of feels like grown-up Star Wars. <laughs> In a way, you know, and I don't even, I don't, it feels like Game of Thrones meets Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's a good point of divergence because Game of Thrones, you can see a lot of influence from Dune as Mm -hmm. well in that the whole Stark's. You're saying Dune influenced Game of Thrones? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The whole Stark Lannister dynamic is very Harkonnen, um, Atreides and, and all of that. I, I don't know. Star Wars, and the reason I don't mean it as like a, a, to denigrate, especially if we just talk about the original trilogy, is that it's very much this kind of fun boyhood adventure. I was thinking about, like, you know, the whole thing of of Luke being tempted to the dark side and everything. And it's a real element in the movie and in the storytelling, but we also kind of know that even if Luke was to go to the dark side temporarily, it's, it's not going to end up that way. Whereas with Dune, and I won't give any spoilers for people who've only seen part one, but like you see that vision of him with the jihad, and it, it like the stakes at the at a minimum, the stakes should feel very very real. Uh, and for people who've only seen the movie, the Holy War, as they called it, it's referred to as a jihad in the when books. he has his vision of himself yeah. up in the ship looking right. down like, on the fight, and oh, his eyes are so menacing there, and Zadea's presence is great there too. And we'll talk more about her performance in a bit, but in that moment, at least, she's just phenomenal. And like you should in that moment feel like this story is not destined to have that kind of happy hero's journey. This could go to a very dark place. But what do you make of the visions? Because from what I could tell, now some of the things are beyond what we see in part one, but any visions that related to part one, it seemed like nothing he saw actually happened. Yeah, so I've been I know we talked about that a little bit online yeah. or texting. I I I think I as I've thought about it more I honestly think that most of what you're seeing is metaphorical. Mm-hmm. So he, they do happen, but he's not seeing literal events of the future. And I can give you a couple of examples. So the most prominent one is that the, there's kind of this old crone voiceover during his visions, which by the way, for people who are book fans, I think there's a good chance that's, um, genetic memory, oh. like the, his first exposure okay. to spice and everything. Yeah, you you normies who've only seen the movie have have a lot to catch up on. <laughs> but uh so I, you, the and and when I watched on HBO Max I was turning on subtitles during those mm-hmm. those those moments cuz they're very hard to hear intentionally so. Well, one of the things the 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 genetic the vision voice is saying is uh Paul Atreides must die for the Kwisatz Haderach to arise. And so what he's seen in those visions is he's seen himself dying again and again. And specifically, he sees uh, Cheney's uh, bloody hand holding the knife that kills him. Well, that's exactly what happens, but not literally. In other words, she gives him the knife. Mm -hmm. Through using that knife, Paul Atreides dies and his new life in the desert is reborn. So the vision is true, but not in a literal sense. So you're saying that the killing of Jameis is what starts his new life. Whereas I I pointed out to you, I feel like the tent scene where they're under the sand 
and he's having these visions and he's coming to terms with who he's about to become. And then when they leave the tent, and I already described this to you, I know, but for the listeners' sake, uh, coming out of the sand like that almost seemed like a birthing scene. As he's- Yeah, but they still have this moment, and it's a moment I'm not crazy about in the movie, but I understand why they did it, is the moment where he's talking to, to Kynes in the ecological center and he's saying well you know get me off planet and i'll try and marry the emperor's daughter and everything it, it i don't love that moment because you it, think it was just teasing Irulan, though it, it is it's definitely teasing Irulan, but it also feels a little much for his character at this point in his journey to be Irulan, jockeying for the throne i should say listeners Irulan is a character we meet later and it's the emperor's daughter yeah uh, or very earlier, if you happen to read the book, she, she, like the first, she yeah. has the first speaking part in the book, I believe. Exactly. And she has a, a weird voiceover thing to open the David Lynch version. Uh, so if you've seen that, but it, it doesn't, it feels a little premature for his characters. I don't love that moment in the movie, but the reason they did that is that at the end, after the whole fight with Jameis, Jessica says, you need to get Paul off world, and he refuses it. Mm -hmm. That's the moment where Paul is done as the Atreides, and he's now living in the desert. So it's you're right. Like The imagery, I think, is spot on for what you're talking about when they emerge from the tent, but it's prefiguring this this moment. And and in Hero's Journey narratives, which this very much is, for as subversive as it is, you look for those threshold moments, and that's it for Paul. He leaves behind being the Atreides and that. So the the vision, and then the other thing with with those visions around Jameis, because it's so fascinating because you see Jameis as like a mentor figure yeah, for him. Exactly. And what's great is that the voiceover is saying, "Look for the friend, follow the friend. He'll show you what to do." And if you've read the books, and this is only a very mild spoiler for those who who haven't, there's going to be a funeral rite for Jameis, or most likely there will be in the movie. There is in the book. And all the Fremen at the funeral go around and say, I was a friend of Jameis, and they say something about him and, and their friendship. And Paul eventually winds up participating in this as well. And I won't go into anything beyond that. But the significance of, like, follow the friend, and he in the vision he appears as this mentor figure, but that is what he was. He was the friend who guided Paul to be the Kwisatz Haderach, but not in the way... It was expected. I like that interpretation better, but how I took it when I saw the movie is we know Paul's seen visions. We know that he's seen not the definite future, but a potential future and that his actions can alter what ends up happening. Yeah. So, and uh, I had, I was kind of seeing this as there is a world where Paul and Jameis both live yes. and Jameis is teaching Paul. And there's a lot of people who are taking it that way. And I don't want to say that that's an invalid interpretation. I don't think it's the best interpretation. I like your interpretation, but the thing I like about the other one is that, in a sense, beyond the grave, Jameis still has an influence of Paul because there is an alternate version who Paul is aware of that can he can learn from and and both versions are very true to the world of dune and mm-hmm. how prescience works i do think that in the context of the movie it yeah. makes more sense in the met- metaphorical vision but again i don't you know that's the fun of interpretations is yeah. that it's not definitive one way or the other the other fun thing of Jameis is he's in the opening scene where cheney's doing the voiceover mm-hmm. and they show the fremen attacking the harvester yeah. he's in that scene okay that's great uh so, in my review, I'd mentioned that both times watching this movie, throughout the experience, I found myself wanting to spend some time watching Lawrence of Arabia, another one of my yeah. favorites. Now, is it just as simple that they're both set in desert locations, or is there more to it? There, There's definitely more to it. I mean, um, I was struggling because there, there's some interesting visual callbacks in this movie to other other movies, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But for Lawrence of Arabia specifically, I was struggling to come up with any, but the influence is, is there. So Lawrence of Arabia, the movie, comes out, I think, in 1963. I could be off by a year, but it's it's 1963-ish. Dune comes out in 1965. Uh, but they're both highly influenced by the historical T.E. Lawrence and his book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And specifically, if you look at Paul's journey and you look at Lawrence's journey, especially in the movie... But it's captured that same ambiguity exists in the historical figure. They're very, very, very similar, you know, and especially like the whole 
idea of you're showing up to this nomadic people. There's this power here, you know, the desert power thing, as it's referred to in Dune. But in, in the context of T. E. Lawrence, both movie and historical, there's this sort of untapped potential that exists in uh, among the Arab tribes. Uh, and the British government in World War I wants to tap it. And so you have a very, very similar stories playing out you know is it possible frank herbert was influenced by the movie maybe i i don't want to say no but he was also you know dune was in in progress for a long time prior to um when it was published in 1965 i think it's more likely that both sources are very very influenced by this this work and so um even if you don't read you know seven pillars of wisdom and you just watch the movie you watch it with dune in mind and vice versa they they interact with each other very very well you know denis denis villeneuve has been making the rounds now because everyone's reacting so well to this movie and there's been different clips of him saying different things the one that i was interested in that i sent to you is that he says he was blown away by christopher nolan's tenant and he called it a masterpiece and I kind of joked with you like it's just kind of an interesting take because yeah. I liked it more than you, but I still didn't love it. Uh, you you have not rewatched it, correct? No. So I I did ask you this off the air, but go ahead and share with the listeners what what do you make of that? Is it just that they're friends now? Or <laughs> I mean, I think I I do think that they have bonded over a couple of different things. Yeah. Number one is that they're now making similar-ish movies. Uh, Denis Villeneuve's career was obviously very very different and prior to. Uh, well, you could argue Sicario is when he first started to do more bigger budget stuff, but especially Blade Runner 2049 and then this are more of that kind of Christopher Nolan level of spectacle. Um, but they're both huge advocates for the theatrical experience, uh, especially in IMAX. And I don't know if you noticed watching this in IMAX, but the same thing that happens in like Christopher Nolan's movies, most prominently maybe Dark Knight, where the aspect ratio is switching. From IMAX scenes to non-IMAX uh, scenes. That's happening throughout this movie when you watch it in IMAX. I think something like 73 minutes are okay. in the IMAX format. Uh, so they're both very prominent there. They both, I think, became uh, uh, bonded in anger over the plan to release same day on HBO. And in, in Christopher Nolan's case, that led to a breaking of his long, like two-decade-long relationship yeah. with, with Warner Brothers. Uh, so... I, I think they're similar directors. I think there's a camaraderie. I think they're both trying to do similar things. I, I'm not saying that Denis Villeneuve is insincere. I think that he's probably also watching Tenet differently than you and I are, mm -hmm. and that we're watching it for a story. He's watching it as a filmmaker, and especially as a filmmaker of this large-scale spectacle, maybe more than he is the way you or I would watch it, and I think that changes it. But yeah, I mean, I, you know. They're, I, I haven't listened to it yet, but they had something that they, some Q&A they recorded together around Dune. I'll say this last last thing, and then I know you have some notes. To, uh, so I just now was going to load up Denis Villeneuve's movie list off of Letterboxd, and you'll be happy to know that Dune Part 2 has already been added oh, to Letterboxd. Fantastic. So I'm looking at the, the screenshot of it right now. So, all right, well, uh, I do want to ask you about his other movies, but we'll come back to that at the end. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about Dune? So, yeah, I have, I have so many notes on here, and these are, are not necessarily in any particular order so we can jump around some of we've already covered um but i'll just kind of start going through this and one of the things i loved in in this movie is there's a lot of attention to detail it skips over a lot but and and we can talk about that in in, in a little bit um but there's a lot that is there that that you can tell there's a knowledge and appreciation of the book one of the small touches I really loved, and people who read Dune with us will will appreciate this. The Fremen eyes, of course, mm -hmm. the, the eyes are blue because of the spice, and and that's been true of all the other different versions. They are truly blue within blue eyes, though. In other words, if you look at the movie, the whites of the eyes, or where the whites would be, are a different shade of blue than the irises. Oh, I like that. So they are truly blue within blue Which eyes. Yeah, you know, and book reader or non-book readers that that's how they're consistently and con i mean almost too much they're referred to as blue within blue right it's it's and, and not just blue within blue but that sort of blank within blank yeah. uh, schemes within schemes and plans within plans it's a, it's a frequent refrain in the yeah. novel uh so i just love that um also in kind of the realm of attention to detail the the thopters like that was mm -hmm. something i've never quite been able to picture 
the way it's described. Yeah, I always just pictured helicopters. Exactly. Or some type of generic sci-fi shuttle, which I think is what the other adaptations have done. The Thopters were so fantastic. Mm-hmm. They're so cool. And then what I picked up on, on one of my subsequent viewings, because one of the things that was bugging me after the first one is when they flee the ecological station, Kynes is like, well, it only seeds two. And I'm thinking, wait a second, we've seen Thopters have like 10 people in them. What's going on? Well, then I started watching for that, and there's actually different styles of okay. Thopter throughout yeah. the movie. So it, it it's brilliant. And all the Thopter scenes are great. The way they look is fantastic. The design is couldn't be cooler. The way that it, you know, flaps its wings and starts up. I don't know if it would be practical or not, but it's such a it's a cool thing from the book that everybody's just kind of not tried. You mentioned kinds. Uh that <laughs> this is gonna sound dumb. I think I may have remembered that character as a male. In the book, is this character male or female? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was a gender swap. Okay. And honestly, I'm not a big fan of gender swaps as a rule. Well, this one was fine. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't impact anything. anything. Okay. And in fact, Kynes gets it's such a great death scene here. And it's this is a good moment of a change because what was in the book wouldn't have worked that well. This works better for a movie. The book works better for a book. So in the book, Kynes is sort of abandoned, stripped naked, and left in the desert over this spice blow. So there's this kind of underground volcano-ish eruption of spice that's going to take place and the Harkonnens leave him there. And he's having these sort of vision, not visions, but hallucinations of his father and and their whole relationship. And you get a lot, you get kind of an info dump on the ecology of Dune there and it's great. And then that's his death scene. Well, that's not going to work that great for a movie. You could do like the hallucination of his father thing, but that's not really the point of that scene in the book. And, and you know, you're not going to pause the movie for 20 minutes on ecology at that point. Uh, I love the thumper. Mm-hmm. And then I love, you know, Kynes, once he, uh, she gets, gets stabbed, uh, is pounding the ground with her fist to make the, the worm come faster. I love that when she's stabbed, it's not blood. That comes out, it's water, Mm -hmm. which is a great, again, this attention to detail, because there's two things going on there. Number one, the book stresses how the Fremen blood clots easily because of how dry and uh, and their changed biology from living in this climate for so long. So Fremen are not likely to bleed out. So that was very true. But then it also works on a metaphorical level of that water is more precious than blood to Fremen. Water is life. Water is life. Exactly. And so when she's stabbed, it's like the stereotypical spurt of blood but it's not blood; it's water. Mm-hmm. It works so well. I love that whole yeah, whole sequence. I agree, and I I remember so I, at this point in the movie, I'm I don't know she's about to be stabbed, and she gets out the two hook looking things. Yes, and for book readers, you're like, oh yes, <laughs> this gonna, is happening. I, I was fairly certain it wasn't happening. Yeah. I was like, they're gonna leave that for part two. So uh, just in case you haven't read the book and you don't know exactly what I'm talking about, at the very end of the movie, you see a scene of one of the Fremen riding. A sandworm and those hook things yeah. are part of the process for being able to ride along. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm kind of expecting her to get away on a sandworm, but of course. And I'm so excited for that because you talk about things that just look terrible in, in both the miniseries and the David Lynch version. It's like they're obviously in front of a, a green screen and somebody's moving a table up and down. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not much better than that. Yeah, actually, for even the scene we saw in the movie here, they did it sort of. Wasn't it kind of long distance, like far away? Yes. Was it through binoculars even maybe? I can't uh, no, remember. No, they're looking at it as they're walking off. It wasn't crisp as it all. Wasn't, it wasn't. And maybe that's better. Yes. It's teasing it. Yeah. It was a teaser. But also, they want to make sure it looks good. Right. Because you don't want to end the movie on something that looks silly. No. You yeah. <laughs> don't want to have it to be, yeah. you know. This is only the beginning. Well. And what's great, the, the the David Lynch version is is the guy who played Big Ed in Twin Peaks is Stilgar. Oh. So you have <laughs> you have uh, Dale Cooper and Big Ed on top of this fake worm in front of an obvious green screen. It's the type of moment in that movie where it's like you develop a little affection for just how horrible it is. Hey, uh, speaking of old Dune things, we still have to watch the documentary. Yeah, Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, how what, were you were? I know you didn't bring it tonight, but next time bring it, then yeah, I'll watch yeah. it and we can talk it, about it. It's great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the whole thing of non-readers with this book, because that I, I think this has been something that readers were especially worried about. Like, are people just going to be lost who aren't reading this? And I, I know we speculated about that a little bit in our instant reaction. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, well, 
how are people going to do with this? And you, you shared Dez's experience, and it seems like a lot of non-readers maybe have a reader friend helping them along for a, diff- a couple parts. But infamously, with the David Lynch version, this was a huge issue, and they wound up distributing definition sheets of different Dune terms prior to the movie. Oh, no. And then if you've ever watched the theater, or not the theater, the television cut, which is the three-hour version, the reason it's three hours is not because there's all this tons of new material in there. There's a little bit, but it's because they stopped the movie to give voiceovers explaining what's happening. Oh, my gosh. So really? it's like Dune is very susceptible to this. But what I what I was very pleased with and have been pleased with as I've been reading non-reader reactions and reviews is that, for the most part, they seem to be tracking with it. And I, I started to think about that as I was watching the movie again. I Here's what I think is happening. I think non-readers and readers are actually having two different experiences watching this. So readers are having an experience where they know the story. And I'm, by readers, I don't just mean you read the book 20 years ago, but you're, you're familiar with Dune. You, you know what to expect. They know the story. They know what a mentat is. Mm-hmm. They know, you know, these terms and everything. And so readers are watching this and they're seeing a version of the story that doesn't capture the depth of the book from that perspective. I think the thematic depth is still there, but not the, not the depth of lore in, in, in the world of Dune. And they're kind of able to fill in the gaps as they go. Maybe there's a few disappointments along the way, like the dinner scene or the, you know, the lack of development for Dr. Yui and everything. But they're having an experience where it feels like there's tons missing and everybody's going to be lost because they're just subconsciously mm-hmm. filling in the gaps. The non-reader is watching this and they're not even noticing the gaps because the movie, for the most part, uh, and I mean, you could probably nitpick things does a great job of threading the needle. Mm-hmm. So like the take Mentats for an example example. We see Thufir Howard's uh, eyes roll up and we think, oh he's a Mentat, he's doing the Mentat calculations. I understand what's going on. And then you you know if you're a real Dune nerd, you're like, well eight thousand years ago the school of Mentats was found blah blah blah. It's human evolution and and you're like filling in this encyclopedia of knowledge in that moment and you think these poor non-readers, they don't get it. But what they do get is they might not even come out knowing the term Mentat. But they see, okay, this guy's doing some type of calculation. I get what's going on. I'm good. They move on to the next thing. And it, it's two different experiences that are taking place. And it's brilliant that the movie pulled that off. Yeah. I've thought about that with other adaptations before where I I go into something knowing I know a lot about this, but how other people feel. But you have to understand, studios have definitely thought about this. Right. Or even, like, Kwisatz Haderach is another good one. Like, they have a brief moment where Gaius Helamahayam says, you know, or maybe it's Jessica, somebody explains Kwisatz Haderach is a messiah, and I think they use the term messiah, which Mm -hmm. is fitting for the Dune universe. And people are like, oh, I know what a messiah is. I'm good. Yeah. Us readers are going, well, the Kwisatz Haderach is the result <laughs> of a 10,000-year breeding program by the Betty Gesserit. And here's where there's a place where the, the seeds, what happens is they take this water of life, and but because they can only see down one side of their lineage. And, you know, it's like you're filling in all this stuff, and you're thinking, well, these non-readers aren't getting it at all. Well, of course they're not, but they got what they needed. Yeah. And the movie is brilliant at that. The movie threads that needle so well. Yeah, I think you're right. Um. Another thing kind of at that meta level, and I have a lot of specific things in here. I'll start moving through my notes faster because I know we're probably going long already. Uh, It's really rare for a movie of this scale. We talked about the immersion. The other thing that that has stuck with me is how unsettling this movie is. Nothing in this movie feels safe. And I mentioned earlier, like comparing Luke being tempted to the dark side versus Paul being tempted to the jihad or foreseeing the jihad, it's more that than a temptation. Um, and like Luke being tempted to the dark side, it feels the stakes feel real for the story, but we also kind of know things are going to be okay because of the type of story that's being told. With this, it doesn't feel safe there at all. And there's a lot of examples of that. We mentioned in our initial reaction how the whole Gamjabar scene and from the moment that ship starts to come down to when it, it takes yeah. off, it's shot like a horror movie and the music is like a horror movie and, and he really leans heavily into horror there. Another moment I was thinking of is at the beginning when the Herald of the Change shows up and I was like, there's nothing. This guy seems really pissed off. He seems really dangerous. And you've got the guild navigators yeah. in their hood, you know, in their helmets. Oh, we have to come back and talk about yeah, that. Yeah. And it's like everything about that scene feels unsettling. 
to me oh, watching well, it. Yes. I mean, it feels like when Duke Leto does yes. a seal, he's signing his own exactly. death certificate or death warrant. And that's, it's so rare for Blockbuster to do it. I go back to the levity thing from earlier. I don't want to be too much to cover to repeat ourselves too much, but like, it's again the temptation that is there and the model that's there with modern blockbuster filming is to hit the hit the uh, pressure release valve a little bit like put in a joke mm-hmm. okay we saw that but now let's have a goofy sight gag and, and get people laughing again and this movie just doesn't do that it yeah. it feels so dangerous through the whole thing well in that exact scene that I was just describing all of a sudden you have everybody looking on it's as if they know what's happening. You know, you see Jessica, the Herald, uh, other characters are looking at him signing this or putting his seal down, and it's as if they all know this is the end for him. Yeah. Although that's not necessarily explicit in the film, right. and I'm not even sure if it's explicit to the characters. But the way it's shot, exactly, it gives you that feeling. Yeah, there's there's a sense of dread throughout, especially the first act of this movie, that is. It's really hard to do, and and not just hard to do from a storytelling perspective, but hard to do from a, will studios let you do that when you have a $170 million budget? So this won't be a spoiler per se, because I'll tell you what I want to talk about. You tell me if you think we should go down that road. I want to talk about the guild navigators and their helmets and what, so I think, so we know that these characters don't actually look totally humanoid well so the the guild navigators we saw would be still in development so they're still looking roughly human. but if you look at those helmets yeah you can see where the gills are going to be yeah and so what i liked about what they did here is you don't want to scare new people away too fast and so right. you, you you plant the seeds by having the helmet be misshaped so then later when you go back and watch the first one you can be like oh yeah i guess they did set yes. us up and for us that know where it's going we, we know what's underneath that helmet yes so i I like what they did there because they 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 gave their book readers what they needed to see, mm-hmm. but didn't scare away new people who may You're not right. be ready for fish it, people. It was perfect. Though the David Lynch version does start with the Guild Navigator in the tank. Okay. Like that's literally yeah. the opening scene. Yeah, that didn't do so well. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you've seen the David Lynch movie, those people in the orange helmets when the, the Herald of the Change shows up are on their way to evolving into the guild navigator from the David Lynch yeah. one. But you're right. It's, it's like the weirdness is more implied than it is there. Yeah. And I think as we get into part two, the weirdness is going to come full yeah, I think front so. and center. Maybe, and I don't even know for sure if it will go full on in part two because we do yeah. know that they have plans to do Dune Messiah. Right. And that's where it gets crazy. It, yes. Yes. I, I'm not sure if you'll see a guild, full guild navigator in part two or not. But for sure, if they do Messiah, you, you would. Yeah. Uh, speaking of weird things. Uh, did you like the Harkonnen spider creature? I didn't know what to make of it because that's it's so that, weird. That's not in the book. No, uh, I did love uh, Gaius Helvahayev just yelling at it yes, to get out. to leave. <laughs> right. So I I think that it's mainly in there just to be like a weird, scary thing that the Harkonnens have. But in universe, mm-hmm. in the, the book universe, in in well, and even in the film universe, you could read it as a Telelaxu. Uh, creation. That's most likely what it is. If you want to make it fit in the Dune universe, yeah. But people that are hearing that you say, yeah, that, that's that, okay. Okay, they don't need to know. The, okay. the normies can. They, they, this is like the. This is like a, a lure for them to keep reading. The other theory I've heard online, and this is falls very much under fan theory, and it's super dark, is that that's Doctor Yui's wife, like, and she's been tortured and twisted and been experimented on until she. You know, is this disgusting spider creature super messed up? No, that I think they made it clear that his wife is dead. Like they they freed the wife by killing the wife. But this is way prior to that in the movie. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. Okay. That is messed up. Yeah, very messed up. Um, loved all of the little mouse guys. Uh, who who would even get to that? Like, where would you get that? Just just like that spider thing. Being Doctor Yui's wife. That's a, it's a theory on Reddit. But where would that? Where? What are the hints at that? Well, I don't know. It's the same idiots who probably came up with the Darth Jar Jar theory. It's like these people are, are, are dumb. All right, keep going. Um, so the little mouse, Mwadi. Yeah, I love it. Which is a term that means nothing if you've only seen part one, and means everything if you've read the book, and will mean everything when you see part two. That was so good how that just yeah. kept coming up. Yeah. It was, I, I love that. There was, it was just a little bit weird when they did the close up on the mouse ear with the water dripping down. And then I know it shows 
every bit of water is important yes. to every being on Arrakis. Yes. So we see him drink his own sweat. Right. But still, th- there was just something a little bit off about that shot. I I liked it. Also, I don't want to derail you, but the thing I'll say that another thing that I thought was a little off, you mentioned desert power earlier. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I felt like a few times when that phrase was used, it came off as just a little cheesy. Like, not a joke. They weren't trying to be funny. Right. But it was kind of funny. No, I, I know what you're saying there. It's it's like the it's a motif and it's from the book. But not as frequently as it was. Desert power. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're trying to establish that phrase as like a, a touch point to come back to throughout the film. And I agree with you. I don't think it works 100%. It doesn't not work. Yeah. But it's it, it doesn't land quite as well as some other things in the movie. Okay. Um, an, another small detail along the lines of the Muad'Dib is the, the bull's head and the whole thing of... So if you didn't pick up on this from the movie... It was mentioned, but it you could easily miss it. That's uh, Paulus Atreides, who is Leto's father, Paul's grandfather, died in uh, as a bullfighter in the arena. So that bull's head is the bull that actually killed him. The first time I saw it, I thought that's a cool Easter egg for for people who've read the book, and then it keeps coming up and it keeps coming up numerous times. Numerous they times. showed the bull, and it's it it actually becomes a thematic touch point. Uh, for the book or for the movie, and I don't know if this is precisely what they were going back, but it, it you know it's a famous Teddy Roosevelt uh, quote, and this is what it made me it reminded me of. Um, so this is from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, "It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood." who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spend himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory nor defeat." I don't know if they had that quote in mind, but that is Paul's journey. And, like, that's what they're going for is that idea. It also dovetails nicely with the quote uh, from The Vision with Jameis of life is not, I forget, a puzzle to figure out however he puts it. It's an adventure to live, which, by the way, is actually Frank Herbert's own gloss on a Kierkegaard quote that says life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. So that theme comes through very well in the movie, and I love that they transcended the bowl from an Easter egg to that. Mm-hmm. So good. That is good. Uh, let's see what else I have here. Um, I mentioned visual cues to other movies when we were talking about Lawrence of Arabia. The one that stands out is Apocalypse Now with right. the Baron. There's a number with the Baron there um from the way that he kind of rubs his bald head while he's huddled on the ceiling which i i don't know why but i just love that the baron's stuck huddled on the ceiling and that's the last time we see <laughs> right? him and it's like it, it, there's a part of my no we see him after that oh sorry you're yeah, right in the mud. yeah in the mud but there, like, there's a part of my brain that says yeah but he probably still would have died if he didn't escape the room but i don't care because i just love that he finds this little corner of the ceiling that has to stay because there. In, in the book he runs out of the room he, yeah well, he floats out the Flip baron it. does not do a lot of running yeah. <laughs> it is not in his skill set yeah. uh, but the way he's rubbing his head it, marlon brando does that who's also okay. bald-headed with kurtz uh the coming up from the mud is there's a parallel shot of that of uh martin short's character um not martin short Martin Sheen's not character Martin. Not Martin, sorry. <laughs> in, a, in Apocalypse Now. Um, there's shots of the Thopters, which are parallel to the helicopters in Apocalypse Now. There's like four or five so, major visual callbacks. Yeah, so what do you make of that Like that connection to Apocalypse Now? I, I think it's just meant to be a visual touch point. Part, it's part homage, and then it's also to kind of give you a cinematic reference point to... Um, Apocalypse. Now we've talked about the concept of literature being the great conversation, mm-hmm. you know, books referencing each other. And I think that uh, Dune is very much doing that here with Apocalypse. Now movies can do that, but in a visual format. 
if you think about the themes of apocalypse now, they're very relevant here. You know, as you talk about uh, what happens when things maybe don't go the way that you planned. And, and that's the story of Vietnam. And that's the story of apocalypse now. And it's, uh, you know, very much you talk about like hero's journeys, but not from the nice fairy tale perspective. Like apocalypse now is literally a journey up the river, which is another way of conveying a hero's journey. But it goes to a very dark place side tangent i know you've recommended a version of apocalypse now to me before there's multiple versions which one is the yeah, correct I'd, one to watch? i'd watch the theatrical version i think the redux version's fine if you're um a, a big fan but i wouldn't recommend it for a first viewing okay um okay so just going through here the bowl and wadib uh the kierkegaard quote oh so one thing I have probably three or four more things to talk about. Uh, one thing I really liked is the visual similarities between the Harkonnens, the Atreides, and the Sardaukar, especially when they're seeing their troops all lined up. Like That's very intentional, and in that we're supposed to look at that and say, well, we're cheering for the Atreides, but wait a second, the visual storytelling is telling me that there's they're two sides of the same coin. You know, it again to go back to like the Game of Thrones comparisons. Who we're cheering for the Starks, we're not cheering for the Lannisters, but they're both part of the same thing that that's maybe ugly and corrupt and all of that. And that same thing's going on here. Like the Atreides are not the perfect heroes; they have their own legions who are chanting fanatically, just like mm -hmm. the Sardaukar do, just like the Harkonnens do. And that parallel really is is well done in the visual storytelling. Although visually, that fight wasn't very fair when the Harkonnens show up in their black armor, and then the Sardaukar show up in their white armor, and uh, the Atreides all just woke up and are in their pajamas. <laughs> That's true. That's so true. Like, this fight's not very fair. Yeah. So that that point, not so much for the Atreides, but I'm thinking of when at the beginning when they're all lined up in their yeah, legions for the hero. Yeah. Herald of the so in in that scene, we see. Um, why can't I think of Brolin's character's name? Uh, Gurney Halleck. Yes, who is a main character in the book, uh, and that I believe that's the last time we see him in it is. in part one. We you made so um, as the movie ends. HBO Max has the kind of the poster image show up, and my wife is just like looking at all the actors, like dead, 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 and she's right. pointing out all the characters who pa like who passed away in this movie, and she thought Gurney Halleck was dead. So I pointed out to her, well, actually, yeah, if you didn't see him die, we didn't see him die, and he is going to be back. That's so right. a little spoiler for part two, uh, but it's he's a main character still. Yes, he is. So what? Why do you think they had it be so ambiguous uh, where it, we just never see him again? It's in that pajama fight. Yeah, I mean, it's a point of compromise in the movie. I think if you think about that character, you would want to have something else. But for the movie as a whole, they're trying to very much follow Paul's journey. Okay. As Paul, Paul leaves behind somebody, we leave behind them in the storytelling. Okay. I'm not saying that, that you know, you, you can definitely point that out as a flaw. I, I think it's a flaw that is going to be rectified by part two. And I think depending on what they do with characters like Thufir Howitt and Gurney in part two, that this part will feel differently when you have the whole thing in view. But that's what they're doing storytelling. -wise. Don't we know that part two is following Chani's point of well, view? Well, I mean, he said that, but I, I think it's going to be broader because that, that was one quote from a, a month or two ago. More recently, he said, we're looking forward to... Um, also following uh, some of the characters we didn't see a lot. I get the feeling that part two is going to be much more ensemble, which okay. follows also the storytelling okay. in, as the, the book goes in that direction, too. Okay. It makes sense if you think about, and I'm not going to say anything, but you think about the things that happened to Jessica in there. Mm -hmm. You almost need to adopt that kind of POV perspective for more characters than you were able to here. And there's moments where we're not with Paul, especially like the stuff with the Harkonnens and the Sardaukar. But for the most part, we're sticking very closely to Paul's journey throughout this movie. So speaking of Jessica, you told me you loved Rebecca Ferguson. I thought she was great. Her. I've heard some people criticizing her performance, and I couldn't, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, you know, people are pointing out, well, Jessica in the book would not be crying and everything. Yeah, but we can, we can hear her internal monologue in the book, and so in the book it comes across that she's having all these emotions but her Benny Gesserit training keeps her stoic on the outside what they did a good job of in the movie is that she shows emotion when she's alone but mm -hmm. then the second she's with Leto 
or whoever, the Benny Gesserit thing is back. When she's on the outside of the door and Paul's being tested, and at first she's really freaking out, but then yep. she gets stronger, and at the same time, Paul is getting stronger. What's happening there? Are they sensing each other, or are they both just independently, uh, like... Uh, getting yeah. rid of the, the mind killer. It, 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 to me, it feels thematic more than it does anything actually happening in terms so of So neither plot. of them are sensing each other. No. They're both having their own experience that happens to mirror. That, that would be my reading of it. I feel like it's shot to have a thematic parallel rather than a literal parallel. Okay. I, I did love the scene where Leto is asking her, will you protect Paul? And she says, with my life. And he says, no, no I'm not asking the mother. I'm asking the Benny Gesserit. And she dodges the question. She never gives him an answer there. Because for duty's sake, she doesn't know what she'll have yeah, to do. Yeah, I mean, it really drives. It's a subtle thing. There's a lot of this in the movie where there's subtle moments where it's like there's more for as much as it feels like they skip over things and they do. There's little things like that where it's like, OK, this movie has more attention to detail and depth of these characters yeah. than you think. You're saying those layers that yes. if you miss it, you still understand. But yes. if you get it, it's it's even better. Exactly. Like in that moment, the layer is her devotion to the Bene Gesserit is, uh, you, overrides her devotion as a mother. And you should appreciate that in that moment. It, it's a it's a subtle thing, but it, it's significant. So she was a breakout actress or actor, too. Yeah, I thought I thought she had one of the best performances. I thought Javier Bardem, he's not in the movie a ton, but he steals every scene he's in, especially the scene where he, he has the audience with Leto. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all I have to say of you. You know, it's it's just great. He's so good. You know, and you could almost like I kept hearing, you know, him as Silva and Skyfall and that, yeah. and they're such different characters, but uh he's such a great actor. I mean Javier Bardem is one of the best actors working today, and he he kills it as Stilgar. He he's phenomenal. Um Zendaya I have more questions about. I like the presence she has in the vision scenes, especially the one we mentioned earlier of her kind of when they're in the plane. I think, you know, the scenes of her walking in the desert, she's very good. She hasn't convinced me yet, and you've seen more of her than I have because you've seen the the Spider-Man movies. (laughs) (laughs) You're a big Zendaya fan. I'm not convinced yet she can really pull off this role. We'll see. But she she didn't convince me terribly. She's not in it a ton either, but her some of her dialogue and delivery at the end I think is not bad, but but maybe not to the level of what I'd want that character to have. You know, the weird thing about it is, I know you joked about Spider Man. I've only seen I'm just trying to think I believe this is true. I believe I've only ever seen her in the two Spider Man movies and now Dune. Yeah, well, I mean and, you know, she has the depth to pull off the MCU. <laughs> so what I was gonna say is the some of the way that she delivers the lines in Dune did sort of remind me of her, like, I don't know, sort of sassy character from Marvel. Yeah. And so the, but you know how some actors, every role they play are, are just a little bit similar because it's just them. That's just kind of yeah. how they are. It might just be, I don't know. I've only seen her in three things now, but and, she might just be always playing herself. And it's unfair to judge her on this. Yeah, because she was in 10 minutes. She's in 10 minutes, but the character requires a range and a depth that I hope she's able to pull off for part two. Now, I did not not like her in this one, but there's, I think, what similar to what you're saying, there's uh, too little to truly judge the performance. Yeah, and what was there didn't show me what I would have hoped it had shown me. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because there wasn't a lot, but, you know, other characters like Javier Bardem's not much more of the movie than she is, and he showed me everything. Like, he, well, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> he knocked it out of the park. Desert power. Desert power. <laughs> uh, yeah so i've got two more things i want to talk about the harvester scene and the sardaukar uh I'll, I'll let you which one do you want first harvester scene oh the harvester scene is so good i love everything about this um from the the change that the because it the the scene happens in the book but not it's not like that moment for Paul that it is in the movie. And so they shift things a little bit to make that a major moment for Paul in terms of his visions and everything. And what I loved about it is that it's the first time he truly sets foot on Arrakis. He's been in Arrakeen, the, the city before, but now this is the first time he sets foot on the desert. And there's a significance that the filmmaking gives that moment. And then the dust cloud th- blows through, the sand cloud with all the spice. And he gets like this mm-hmm. this first overdose of spice. 
and it's so perfect. The over the voiceover in that of this kind of old crone voice says, Quizatadarak, you can see. In other words, it's like for the first he's time waking he's waking up. It's so perfect. The other thing that's great is that then he's kneeling by the harvester, uh, and Gurney Halleck's approaching him and he says, I can hear your footsteps, old man. And there's two ways you can take that. And I'd only thought of the first one is that number one, it echoes the whole training scene with him and Gurney from earlier. The other way, which is really intriguing, is that one of the the names the Fremen have for the sandworms is Old Man of the Desert. Oh, I didn't and know that. And there's a worm approaching at that point. I don't know if that's an, that's another internet thing where you could say maybe that's not intentional, but I like that. Like, that's that's pretty cool, too. You know, they, in that exact line that you're saying, there's the weird jump cut there. Yeah. Uh, is that just because he's in the middle of a uh, the, his vision, sort yes. of? Okay, yeah. Yeah. So is that just to, supposed, uh, supposed to display to us he's losing time? Yes, yeah. like he's he's now displaced in time yeah. for the first time. And the other thing I love, and this is more than just that scene, but I love when the worms are attacking the way the ground just falls out yeah. from under yeah. them. It's like it goes from solid ground to it's just collapsing. Mm-hmm. It, it's so well done. The worms are, we don't see a ton of them in this movie, uh, but they're so well done. Mm-hmm. I, I just loved it. Uh, and f- the last thing I have in my notes is the Sardaukar. The Sardaukar is such a short scene. But it's really cool. I mean, it's brutal, but it should be. Seleucus Secundus is the emperor's prison planet, and it's supposed to be this kind of hellhole that trains the Sardaukar to be these elite fighters. Uh, So there's a lot going on in this scene, and it's fast, but they have these kind of slaves or prisoners being crucified upside down. The blood is running off of them into a basin. It's being collected, and that's what the Sardaukar are being marked with. As they're going through and marking their foreheads. Hmm. The other thing that's interesting here. It's messed up. It is messed It's about the Sardaukar are messed up. The other thing that's wild here is you've got that guy up on the podium who's chanting. And what that actually is, is uh, I think it's Tibetan throat singing. And that's what gives it that weird noise. And that, that throat singing is also what happens at the very beginning of the movie where you have that dreams are messages yeah. from the deep, and then it's just so weird that that's there, and then it goes right into like the the studio credits yeah. and everything. And so I've been totally obsessed with with that moment in the movie. I don't know what it means. I love I love when movies do this or any type of story where it's like I don't know what that means. I don't know. I mean, like obviously the words uh are significant for doing that Paul's dreams and visions are more than just you know Duncan's wrong they're not they're not just good stories there yeah. is actually something there so i get what the the words mean but the placement of that in the movie the weird throat singing mm-hmm. on top of it it gives it such a bizarre tone uh i just love how bizarre that is and what a bold choice to to start the movie with this completely out of left field i also love it this opening scene and it has me thinking we it's not even a scene it's yeah, just yeah yeah that's yeah the title card i i as you look at the movie as a whole though there is a lot about dreams mm-hmm. and visions and even perception of reality yes and so i it does all tie together but you're right i it i love how it throws you off and then it goes to uh, produced by. Well, yeah, it's like the Warner Brothers yeah. credits are after that, and that's why I was like, because when we saw there, there had been so many stupid commercials. I was like, is that just another stupid AMC promo? <laughs> like, I didn't even know that it was. The AMC's getting a little dark. I was like, I'm like eighty percent sure that's part of the movie, but I'm not one hundred percent sure. Uh, it was well, so good. Well, since we're at an hour, I was thinking about going through Denis Villeneuve's. Yeah, uh, let, let's films, do it. But let's oh, not. No, no, let's do it quick. Let's do it quick. I think we should. It. I think we should save it. That, that could be a whole different episode. Okay, but one one last thing I just thought of. Okay, uh, the hand talk. That's a, a small thing in yeah. the book, but I love that the hand talk makes it in, into this. Yeah. I guess they invented their own sign language okay. for it. Uh, we didn't talk about the voice much. Voice is so cool in this movie. And again, another element that feels so creepy. Like yeah. They really lean into horror. They did it a little bit different. The very first time Paul does it, his mouth starts moving and then we hear it. Yeah. And then going forward, it just it sounds different as they speak. I yeah. kind of liked it. It was like almost too much, like a little bit creepy when it was... It didn't line up, uh-huh. but I think I like that version better. Yeah, it, both of them work, and yeah. I think that you know part of what they're trying to convey that first time, and this is my interpretation, is they're trying to convey the the displacement of time again. It, uh-huh. It's leaning into that whole theme. But yeah, it, like when they're on the thopter, 
and and Jessica gets her gag unbound, and then she goes into like full voice. It's it it's legitimately unsettled. Yeah, it's frightening. It's so good. All right, I'm hitting the music. We there's more we can say. Uh, yeah, let's and some episode not too far down the road. Let's just look through his other movies. And right. have you seen all of them? I haven't seen a couple of his very early ones, and he has some short films on Letterboxd okay. I haven't seen. All right. Because uh, well, a couple of his early ones, he's French-Canadian, so I've seen one of his French-Canadian movies. I've seen all of his English-language movies. All right. So I'll have some questions. I'll ask for some recommendations. But for now, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeBono. And we're the Sapphire Christians, signing off. Well, I know you love prisoners, so, you know, we'll just go from there. I mean, I can recognize You can recognize the filmmaking quality. Yeah. yeah. Even though, yeah. So we'll talk more about that later. So long, folks. Goodbye. I love that you love it. I'm really happy for you that after all this time, you were you hoping it was going to be good. And a few times in the show, I said, what if it's not good? Right. But guess what? It turned out to be it amazing. Felt, sir, I mean, I, was, I wasn't sure how good it would be, but like I watched the miniseries and I was just trash. And then I watched the David Lynch one and I was thinking, you know, compared to the miniseries, this is pretty good. And I realized, but it's still trash. So I was like, oh, great. This is perfect because I'm going to go into it as like, I've just watched the mini series that made the David Lynch one look great. The David Lynch one's guaranteed to make this look great. There's no chance I don't love this movie. Yeah. And everybody loves it. I mean, I I shouldn't say everybody, but, uh, you know, we are still recording. I'll just quickly check and see. I like to get a feel for what the score is on Letterboxd. So, I mean, it's at a overall 4.1, which is actually very good. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of movies that kind of break that 4.0 average barrier on Letterboxd. All right. I'm going to end this for real now. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.